You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Dan Mychek, I help companies connect with the best tech talent, and I'm your host. So welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Inara, Andrew, Elias and Marlin to discuss how to be successful in product. So before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Inara, do you want to kick us off? Uh, yes, of course. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Inara, a scientist by training. And after my PhD, uh, I joined a startup um, where I discovered how technology can shape and is shaping already our world. And I also fell in love with, with product management. Um, so now I work as a CPO at Pradabits, which is a Swedish company where we're building a home for product managers, like a place where they can find whatever they need, whenever they need it. Um, so sometimes my job is a bit confusing because I'm building products for myself. So, and you shouldn't do that. So <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit inception in my head. <laughs> Fantastic. And we'll move to you, Andrew, next. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, my name is Andrew Owen Sembatia. I currently work as the head of development at Rentia. And at Rentia, we're building a digital platform to facilitate the process of long-term renting for both landlords and tenants. So from finding homes, signing for those homes, paying your bills, living, and hopefully finding a new home in, within the same ecosystem. Uh, before that, I was a software developer in Cape Town, South Africa for a few different companies. And when I'm not working on digital products, I am the product. So I try and stay active and uh, learn as much as I can. So today I look forward to learning from each and every one of you guys. Fantastic. Yeah. Cheers, Andrew. Uh, and we'll go to you, Elias, next. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, I'm Elias Elinder. I'm the CPO at ILT Education. And ILT Education is an edtech company. Uh, we were founded in Sweden, but now we are present in 10 different countries, actually. Uh, and what we do is that we provide educational tools and content for schools um, and with the guiding star of inclusivity. So we provide tools for every student, but uh, we try to specifically target students with reading disabilities and diverse language backgrounds. Um, and many people in Sweden at least know about our most popular service here, Polyglut. So many preschoolers in Sweden use this service actually. Uh, and it's a multilingual digital picture book service. Uh, so we have thousands of books for preschools narrated uh, in Swedish, but also in 60 different languages. So you can include everyone in the magic of story time, as we say. Um, I've been with the company for about a year. Uh, I'm actually originally a teacher myself, uh, but has been in the edtech industry for 15 years or so in different roles, both software development and uh, product roles and sales and other roles as well. Uh, but ILT is a really great company. I truly love it. Uh, and I think we have a very exciting journey ahead of us with all of these new countries that we're in as well. So that's me. Fantastic. Cheers, Elias. And last but not least, we'll come to you, Marlin. Yeah, Marlin Straman. Um, I'm CPO of our online products at SVT, um, Swedish public service television. Uh, television does not feel at all what I'm working with, but we still are named uh, Public Service Television. Uh, I'm having a background with only online startup products before uh, SVT, but I've been at SVT now for almost 12 years, I think. So it's a long time ago, 
but one thing that I was part of was had a product of uh, a star doll that was like a community for 20 million young girls dressing up their dolls. And I feel connected to you already, Elias, because we have the same sort of interest, I do think, in educational matters and so on, because before before Stardoll, everything I've done so far has been aligned with educational purposes. And when starting off at, at SVT, I also started in the online kids department. So I've always had that as a background with me. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. So now that we've established a bit of context to each of you, we'll move on to the topic in focus. So you all have a question or statement relating to how to be successful in product. And then as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. And each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So we'll kick off with Ainara's question. Do you want to introduce that for us? Yes, of course. So as I, as I said before, I started my, I always like signing in my, in my previous life, um, I worked in a lab as a scientist and um, Sometimes I'd say, no, because I'm not a scientist anymore and my partner is still a science, scientist. I say, no, no, you're still a scientist. But what I really brought with me was this very analytical and, and scientific approach to everything. So when Dan shared the question uh, with us, like the main topic for today, what, what does it take to be successful in product? I started analyzing the question. And normally when I do that, I get to another 10 of 20 questions. I, I love questions. Um, but one of them was, okay, but what does it mean to be successful? What it is? Um, and then I started thinking, okay, let's let's think about successful products. And then the first thing that comes to mind is like, oh, products that make a lot of money. You know, all these companies want to be unicorns all the time. And then, yeah, but it's not about money. It's about the users, right? So, okay, so a company, like a product that is used a lot. But then, of course, you want users that stay using the product for a long time. So it's, it's more about the value that they get from that product. So, okay, a successful product is, is a product that delivers value to users. Um, and then I started thinking, okay, um, but what if, you know, there are a lot of us who've, who've worked in, in different companies that you know, the whole thing of fail fast. So when you fail, you don't really reach that many people or you cannot even launch because you run out of money or whatever. It doesn't mean that you weren't successful. Um, and then I started thinking out the whole concept of concept of learning, that, that you should be learning about your users and about your market and about everything all the time. So I, I kind of came up with the, the, my own definition of this successful product is a product that delivers enough value to enough people and give you enough money <laughs> to keep learning on how would you can bring more value to more people. Um, not a very uh, <laughs> easy to say uh, definition, but um, and then obviously I came to the question, how, how do you measure that? Um, and obviously that's, that's why I wanted to discuss with you because I don't have the answer. Uh, we know there are a lot of metrics out there um, and also a lot of different parameters that I haven't included in my logic uh, uh, chat here. So yeah, that basically that's my question of what is success? Uh, what does it mean to be successful in product and yeah, how to measure it or what should you take into account? Uh, um, 
It's a very nice question, and it's interesting that as you, the more you spoke about it, you kind of hit certain points that I'd already thought about, right? And I think uh, if you ask a question, depending on who you, who is answering the question or the perspective you're looking from, you will definitely get a few different answers. So I think it's it, there's no one answer that is that fits all, but I think you can simplify how you evaluate success by asking three more questions. And you love questions, so <laughs> I'll add you some more questions, yeah? So the first question would be, whose perspective are we looking at the product from? So who, who's a stakeholder for that evaluation, that particular evaluation? So that needs to be clear. And after you know the, the stakeholder, what's the goal of the stakeholder with the product? So what are they trying to achieve? If it's an investor, they're trying to get the numbers to a certain point in their favor, right? And in our case, if it's a tenant, they're trying to find a place to stay in a specific time frame safely. So you need to know the goal very specifically, right? And that kind of leads into the final question, which is the yes and no that simplifies everything. Did they achieve the goal or did they not? And if it's a yes, then I guess congratulations, you have a successful product. And if they say, if it's a no, then like you said, you learn from the, from whatever issues happen, go through the evaluation again, and hopefully you find a yes uh, a few times after, right? And if you look at it, maybe a bit more granularly, if you have a big product, you can use the same thought process for each feature that's being deployed. If you look at it as a product itself, right? Go through the same questions, ask the questions, and hopefully if you have enough yeses at each level of each feature, maybe you can have a product that fits the definition that you gave, that is a success from as many perspectives of stakeholders as possible. So that's that's kind of uh, my thinking. I don't know what you guys think. Well, Ainara, here you're talking to someone working with public service, right? So, uh, of course, value for the money is always some sort of issue. I mean, someone needs to get value for the money that they put into something or the time that they put into something or like any sort of investment that anyone put into something, they have to get some sort of value back from it. So that is maybe the mo my most simple way of thinking of it. And um, one thing that I was thinking about when, I mean, uh, on the overall question here, like how to make a good product, one of the prime conditions that I have experienced coming from a startup world, doing failures there and, and uh, successes there, and then coming into public service is that one condition that is really good thing for making a great product and making it a success without which I think maybe you're after without having to just gain money and money and money you know like there's some sort of balance to it that is actually uh, the condition to have an economy that lets you start small and, and grow organically and not push it too early to something else because then you can listen to your users and actually give them the value and have no other you know like pushes from someone else to do something else than just try to give your users the value but you need that economy to actually be able to grow organically until you break even until you can you know like earn the money you need for what you need them for, but not more than that. So I would say one condition is like long-term economy. That's that's a really good point. And sorry, Elias, um, but another big thought that I that I had while thinking about this uh, is the whole like the, the teams. Like at the end, how we've seen it now with all these startups um, firing a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people like LinkedIn is is filled with all these like burnout conversations and mental health and all of that. So, 
obviously you don't put that you don't put a dollar amount to that cost like the human cost of building products but but um should that be considered part of the success criteria right like are we building a product in a, in a sustainable way not only for the environment but also for the humans that are building that product um that to me that's something really important as well i, I was thinking about on a philosophical level what is a product what really is a product here and and you have all been around this the value uh, the product is creating so and and the value is the value for the end user really i think so is someone actually benefiting from using this and i usually say that it isn't a product until you have users so we are building a lot of stuff in the development teams and so on and we are getting a lot of features out and if no one is using it that's not part of the product it's not a product at all because it doesn't bring any value to anyone it's just there it's a feature or it's a concept on a paper or something uh, so how do you measure that then well you have users is that value or do you have many users or do you have high users uh, but when you were talking now and, and talking about things I, I was thinking that maybe it's recurring users because that's something that actually proves that well i used this once and then I come back and use it again because I thought it was good. And then I came back again and thought it was good. Maybe that's a measurement that we can say, well, this is some kind of proof that this is this is actually successful. And then we're like detaching it from, from money or other things, really, because that's not really measuring the product. It's measuring the success of the company more. Can I say, because I also thought about that, and then I thought, but you know, you also have these products that you kind of have to use because there is no other option, right? Like, uh, I don't know, some public services or now in this new company, like I, I used to use Google before and now we use Microsoft. My goodness, I'm forced to use recurrently Outlook every day. And oh my God, I miss Google so much. So. I wouldn't say that they're sex, but they're probably uh, successful at signing long, like life-term contracts with people that are forced to use their product. I don't know how they do it, but um, that was my reflection about that. True, like if if they use it regularly, that means that they're getting value. But also another another thought that I had: there are products that you maybe use once per year only because that's and you get enough value, but it's not a really recurrent usage, right? Or maybe I don't know. So yeah, those are, because I also thought it's about like that. A, it's like something you use before Christmas because you're going to buy Christmas presents. That adds value. It's a great product, Christmas buying product. I don't know. Malin, you mentioned something quite interesting. You said uh, that you have to create an economy, a long-term economy for a successful product. And I was curious what happens before the economy is created? Like, uh, does that mean that you can't have a successful product before that economy exists or is there a balance? Probably could, but the thing is, I mean, I guess we're all agreeing on that starting small is a good idea. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, it's a, just a, a situation that I, I guess we're all agreeing on. And I mean, you can start off very small and you can, con you, you can create value at once to someone, of course, and that is already by then probably some sort of, of success to someone. But I mean, I would really like to argue for that a successful product will have some sort of long-term situation, you know, like 
it cannot you know die in a couple of weeks because you didn't have money enough for it has to have some sort of longer life to be called successful i would just think yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, you could probably argue otherwise, but building products, I would say that it's not successful to me if it's not staying alive for a very long time. So it, you have to also make it, you know, sustainable, keep, in, keep rolling, have the, situa- the, the conditions that it can grow or come to use for many more people. Or because otherwise I I would not feel satisfied at least with a product that's not coming more and more and more people to use. So that's that's why I'm thinking about the long term economy, because if you don't have the long term economy and you have to get investments from someone who's too soon asking for return of investment, then you start to do things that's not always good for the product. I mean, it's a very common situation that someone's starting for return of investment far too soon because they don't really care about the 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 good product they care about the return of investment. And then it's very easy to start to not do a good product anymore. But then yeah. again, I mean, if that was the purpose of the entire product, then it's successful. I agree with that. But but I mean, if you're thinking about a successful product, then at least maybe you would say that it would be coming to use for more and more people under a longer, longer time period. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I just think that maybe there is somewhere between getting that successful oh, that successful economy and finding users that are willing to pay for the product where it's a bit tough to balance uh, mm-hmm. you understand so you're taking risks you're trying things to ensure that you get the users who are willing to pay and come back and then get that economy and in that period you still have to have a team to build the features mm-hmm. and maybe that's why certain companies bring on board people that have the money to and see the vision of course Absolutely. To lead you across the line. This is the dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> I, I guess I guess it's it's tough to define what a success is within that whirlwind. Mm-hmm. So uh, but but I think all, all perspectives that you you guys have brought up the users, the economy as well, seeing how good the cash flow is at that point in time are all indicators of success or uh, peril, I would say. I mean, the, the dream is and probably the best conditions for actually making a good product to be able to run a team making this product and having an organic growing of it, you know, starting small, having the product growing with their users, but who can have that? It's not a normal condition to have that. But I mean, it's a dream position to actually probably make the absolutely best product ever. Uh, and then you can start to, to monetize it. And then it's a fantastic product, but it's, uh, I mean, it's maybe only public service who's, who's able to run this. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you use the word a dream. It's a dream for everyone to <laughs> exist in that scenario, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and probably the I, best scenario for the best product ever. Well, exactly. Yeah. But I think we, we should be able to make that dream come true, right? And and I think every that's why I also asked that question about the definition of success. And it is true, Angie, when you said that it depends uh, for whom. Um, and and that to me that was really interesting because it is completely true. Like success will be different from um, the investors, from the users' uh, perspective, from the product manager perspective, from the developer perspective. Um, but somehow there is one definition of success, which is 
making money because that's that's what I when you when you go through an investment round that's what they check they 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 don't check whether your employee engagement is good enough they don't check uh, well they check number of users but only because it correlates with money right um also they're very focused on like short term so if we could introduce different ways of measuring success at the investment level uh, i think we could we could start you know, making the dream a little closer um, because then the investors will, will not look only at the return on investment on their money, but also on the return on investment on other metrics, impact metrics, engagement metrics, um, uh, employee health, uh, mental health metrics, I don't know. But so we're building products that, that are bringing value. We're not killing ourselves <laughs> building those products. Um, and I think we can we we can get closer to the dream if we start. And, and I think it is changing. And we we see now a lot of impact investment firms that are looking at that. There there is movement in that direction. Uh, but I think we all need to to push for that to change the definition of success. Fantastic. Cheers, guys. Um, we will move on to Marlon's question next, if that's okay. Absolutely. I was almost going to pick up Anyara's last line here and, and pick it and move it over to my subject because it has something to do with my my question. Uh, I've been working for a long time and as, as we have said, I mean, the transformation the, during the past 15 years from waterfall product to management to the agile management it's i mean it's been a journey with all employees around you people from different areas have to learn this and so on everyone almost has learned this now and still uh managers and sometimes anyara also investors <laughs> uh, managers top managers are not always you know, like a part of that journey. They have not been a part of that journey. Many managers at the very tops, they they have not, you know, like um, used those skills of their own. So someone has to, to make them, you know, like understand how we are supposed to work agile. And uh, I guess I'm not the only one having those problems. Some of you guys here in in uh, this pod, you are sitting smiling right now. So I suppose that you recognize this, this uh, troublesome issues that, that most people have in at least at traditional companies moving from some core, some other core uh, offer that they used to have, for example, television, moving over to an online offer, which is not exactly the same, but almost. I mean, those transformations are quite hard in, in many companies. And my experience has been for very almost all of that time is that people, middle management and most of all employees often try to block their top managers from everything you know like keep them out of what we are doing just make them stay away and i have realized since a few years back that that is probably the worst way of making things happen because what you probably need instead is asking yourself how can i actually get juice from my top management how can i make them intelligent and how can i i um, get help from them to make this happen even if it feels sometimes that they don't know enough and so on so my my 
try to right now get everyone on board with what we do so that we can get the full enforcement of the entire company uh, instead of uh, battles between different people is to to actually ask our top management what do you need us to to make to make uh, us be able to do the best job that we ever can what do you need what are your driving forces what do you have for demandments from other people around you how can i make you shine how can you feel that you actually is part of what we do and um, make them also like be a part of what we do it's not always that easy so i'm wondering if you have any ideas of like tricks or or how to actually you know like involve your manager not your top management within what what you try to make happen when it, it's not exactly the way they use they used to do it sort of so do you have any any thoughts i don't know if i have any concrete tips maybe i do uh but i i think um when talking about what we are going to develop or what we're going to do uh, keep it simple uh, i agree on this transparency and really talking around what we're going to do but also keeping it simple because I think there's always this trap of falling into uh, talking about too much details about features or about what we are actually building. Or if you show a, a screenshot or, or a preview of something that we're going to do, then you're talking about the details. You're talking, oh, I can't, we can't have that button there, or we need to change this text here. Or, uh, but really talking about big themes somehow uh, and uh, keeping it simple from there because then you can really utilize the the um, competence in, in top management and in, in board members or whatever you have uh, that maybe have some like um, what's it called uh, view of what's happening in other parts of the world or in other parts of the industry and so on and, and can bring that into that discussion um, so I, I think that keep keep it simple and keep it on a high level uh, but still talk about it very transparently I would say. I have this fantastic he's amazing the most intelligent and wonderful top manager on the on the kids department and we he he was part of the journey. The thing is that many things that he was doing were quite operational and we you know like managed together to make other people do those those things and it just took a few months and then he was actually in reality standing saying but what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and that was a, a kind, kind of a sad feeling to see him like, what am I supposed to do? Because he's a really great thinker. He has a great mind and a, a fantastic mindset. And it took him quite a long time to actually find his new role. So how can we help those top managers to understand their new roles faster? Uh, first, I think I'll just maybe mention that for teams to to operate autonomously, they require a great deal of confidence and confidence within themselves, but also confidence from the top management as well to let them do whatever they need to do. And for them to actually operate the way we imagine them to, or hope for them to, like uh, Elias said, you have to keep communication simple. It has to be clear what the goals are. And once those goals are clear, it also has to be clear what the expectations of the goals are. And also, I guess that that kind of ties into the metrics of success so that while they work, and make decisions day to day, they can gauge which decision is pushing them towards success and away from it. And I think that's where you can unlock the, the magic of autonomy. But I think while these teams are working autonomously, 
it allows also for top management to do exactly what you just said, mentioned, Marlin, to think, to be the overarching viewers of whatever is going on, to look at the big picture and plan, and then find the best way to communicate the goal of the big picture and send it through so that you can have like continued success. And maybe just to, to add something onto that, in some cases where this communication isn't very clear, there needs to be a culture where it's open to ask questions and to ask for clarity so that everyone is on the same page. And if you ask someone from whatever department, they have the same information as a person from, I don't know, the sales department. So it really helps when everything is clear, simple, and there's an openness about the communication. Very true. It's really hard in big companies to actually get that information to be that transparent and spread around all over. But you're absolutely right in how damaging it is when it's not. Yeah, I was I was thinking. Well, the, the first of all, when when you start talking, like the first thing that I that I thought was trust, which is what you just said, Andrew. Like, if you want teams to not team like everyone to be autonomous and make decisions and and follow a goal and try to achieve a goal you need to trust them so the whole thing is just to, just to hire people that are smarter than you and then trust them and then give them some tools so give them what they need to do their job but so trust was a, a big thing that came to my mind the thing I is also, the top management are not used to trust i mean that's the i mean you, maybe, this is something that we always say like yeah they need trust yeah but it's, it doesn't help just telling someone that they need trust they have to you know like how to get how to actually create that trust because it's not there it's not it's not there because we say so definitely but but then when you say like how do we help them to find a new job maybe that's what they we need to like they need to understand uh like how do you how do you learn to trust this team what do you need to trust them and and how can you build that trust together and and i keep talking about them and they and, and that's something that i really don't like because i think that's part of the problem as well is this whole like oh top management is them and we are and i'm a cpo now so i guess i'm in top management but i still think like no i'm, I'm not them <laughs> um and I remember having some, you know, development conversations and my, my manager telling me, oh, that you want to go into the C-level, blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to be like them. They don't do anything. I want to do stuff, <laughs> uh, which is really bad. Um, and the whole, I don't, I still don't know if I fully understand the concept of stakeholder, but it was really hard for me at the beginning to understand what, what is a stakeholder and the whole like stakeholder management. And now I'm, I'm I'm rethinking like it's no stakeholder collaboration. Like we are all part of one team. It's just we have different roles. And for me, for example, it was really when I joined in my previous company, we were ten people, and when I left, we were five hundred. So I basically I had to reinvent myself like a million times. I cut myself in pieces. Like conversations that I would have, I was having with myself. I had to have with three people and and how do you build that that transparency and communication and consistency especially consistency um you know sometimes um i think people make all these uh, difficult calculations and revenue and blah 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 and these complicated revenue models and that <laughs> Then you're there, you have one of these all hands on meetings where the CEO comes and say something. And it creates so much confusion that it takes the team one week to get over that, to get clarity again after that message. And it's like, oh my God, no one put in that spreadsheet this time that we wasted. <laughs> like when we did all the story point calculations, we didn't include story points for this. 
um, misunderstanding. So I, I don't have a magic recipe, but apart from from thinking that everyone, everyone, we're all humans. And and what you said at the beginning, manning yourself, like we have different roles in the company and, and success for us, like what, what is important to us is different. Also individually, I, I also remember it took me a while to understand the sales team. Right. It's like, okay, but once you understand how how even they are compensated, like the compensation depends on how much they set. So obviously that's the only thing they want to do. Um, so it's, it's understanding and it links a little bit with the empathy question that you have later, Andrew. Um, trying to understand who you have in front of you at the role level, but also at the personal level, because same like same role done by different people can can create a different dynamic, completely different dynamic. So when, again, of the overall question, like what does it take to be successful in product? I keep I keep going back to people. <laughs> At the end, it's all about people. Um, even as a product manager, like you can come up with the best roadmap ever and, and everything and do all your, um, interview your users and know your market and everything, but I wasn't the one building the product. <laughs> I'm not coding. I'm not designing. I'm not doing anything. So I'm not important in a sense. Like I'm not like what is important is that the people that are coding they they understand the uses, not me. So I think I went uh, to like a different. But there is no magic recipe. I would say, Malin. But think think that everyone we are all people. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Sorry. I, I Even the stakeholders are people. <laughs> I, I just have to say, I, I really agree on the trust thing. Uh, I really like that word in this because, and I think an important role as a product manager then is to create this trust everywhere and try to understand everyone. And back to the empathy question again, very clever. Um, and um, really, how, how do you build trust then? That's also a very interesting question that we don't have here, but we really should have that here because that's really fundamental here, I think. Uh, how how do we make the top level management in this case actually trust that there is some outcome or whatever they want? They want outcome. They want new features. They want more users. They want. How do we make them trust us to actually deliver on that uh, and really try to communicate that? So again, the transparency and uh, so on. It's very important this to build that trust. But it's also a very complex question. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheers, guys. Um, we'll stay with you, Elias, if you want to introduce your question. Yes. Of course. Um, so my question then was to uh, how personal insight into the industry, how important is that to be successful in product and product development? And um, the the background really is, well, as I said, I'm a teacher and I'm in ed tech, so I have quite a lot of personal insight or interest in the industry and what we do and so on. Um, but the question here is, do, do we really need this to be successful in product? Uh, because I'm thinking that there might be a balance here between personal knowledge about the users and, and what the needs and everything and doing user research that really is needed to understand the users to build successful products. So if, if you're too deep into it personally, then you might just trust your gut feeling and everything, which I kind of do. I trust my gut feeling in my decisions uh, because I, yeah, they, 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 this is how it works for a teacher. I know that, sure. Um, but 
On the other hand, then if, if you are too far away, you might become very reliant in user research and everything goes very slow because, well, I need to set up this user research here and I need to ask everyone. Uh, and there are drawbacks with that, as well as trusting the gut feeling biases and everything uh, in this. Uh, so, and I've met all kinds of people in product because product is a very interesting field from, from a career perspective. <laughs> uh, is there a, a training to become a product manager or is the high school degree for this? Well, maybe there is, but many have gotten into this back door, so to speak. They have found their way into product management. You talked about this as well, and how you got into this product management, found this super interesting field. Um, so then often that is kind of experts in the field that has gone that way. But I've also met these generalists who, who really are build, good at building product uh, organizations and so on. And that's kind of another skill in this. So basically, that's the question. Have you thought about this and what's, what's your thoughts? Uh, I'll go first. Um, I think it's very valuable to have deep insight uh, in the industry. I believe it will obviously increase the chances of you succeeding for many reasons. I think, first of all, it makes you more confident about the challenge that you're, that you're going against. So confidence has never been a bad thing. So it really does make you a bit more confident. And like you said, it saves you a lot of time answering certain research questions that you already know, and maybe in other cases would have taken you months or a lot of work to actually get the answers to. So it does save you time on that. It gets you up from bed as well. That you don't have to dig deep for motivation, I can imagine. And I would say it's the same for me because I am the target market for our product as well. So I don't find it difficult working on the product every single day, the same thing, because I know the pain, right? So it also increases the urgency as well. But that said, I think you use the word bias, and that's very important to note because bias can actually destroy your product completely because it will make you blind to even the simplest things that you would have been able to see from the lens of unfamiliarity where you're trying to minimize risks so you make sure that everything is perfect but if you know you kind of get a bit cocky and confident and miss very small things that would have been easier to see so that's one of the downsides and another downside is customers what they what they perceive as worth their money might sometimes not align with what you think is worth uh, paying for and that's fine i think i think we need to find a bit of a balance there and i guess just to wrap up my thoughts it's good to have deep insight but you need to balance that with research to validate what you're thinking whether it's wrong or right and for those that do not have the insights that's fine you can pair that up and empower it with research as well and also empathy for the customer so that you can fill in the gaps of knowledge that you might not have from experience so uh, those are my thoughts yeah i i I agree. I, I That's what I said at the beginning. Now I'm in this interesting situation where I, I need to build a product to, to train and to help product managers. So it's a little bit like I, I need to constantly remind myself that I'm not the only product manager and I, I learn differently than other people. So um, what I need is not what everyone needs. So it's um, you need to be very intentional. Um, about uh, making sure that you're not being biased and and but it is a balance uh, of of like trusting what you know and and also what you all this knowledge that you're building. I don't know if you you've read this um, the Thinking Fast and Slow book. It was kind of famous some time ago, but but it talks about the system one and system two in your brain, and that one of them is just it goes on on automatic um, pilot, like the, just make decisions constantly based on on the things that you've experienced in the past. 
and all your biases. And then the system number two is the analytical one that will, you know, like do calculations and so on. But you can actually train your your systems. So, for example, um, firefighters, when they go to a fire, they automatically know some stuff. Like they enter the room and they, they know, OK, we need to leave now because the ceiling is going to collapse. And they're not really able to tell you exactly how they knew. But the fact that they've been in many fires already, like they've learned, maybe they've noticed a little change in temperature or something. So, so it is good to trust that knowledge that you're building over time. But you, as I said, you need to be intentional and you need to involve other people. And sometimes you shouldn't be the one making some decisions or or you need to build like tech tech points in your in your system. But I would say like also Andrew said, and, and going back to leave it to, to the beginning of, of a product, right? It can save you a lot of time knowing already some things about your, your market and your users um, to, to launch something quickly. Um, and then of course you need to adapt because the whole thing about the early adopters and so on and how you go through that curve. I keep forgetting the name. Um, but there are key things as well that I think you can, you should know, like the sales cycle, like what is the sales cycle of your market that like you're in the ed tech world, uh, Elias. So, so you know that, you know, it's long sales cycles, uh, take, you know, when the teachers will make decisions. And if you don't know that, you may launch like two weeks late. Um, so having those like key data points, I think can be very, very useful. I think that of course skills are good. And uh, you should always have like great people with with great skills. But you're absolutely right that people tend to act to you know like have a very narrow mind on the exact box where they are. So it's really hard to make them think outside that box. No matter what methods you use, they they tend to only see what is there around them and not what you can do else than what they have around them. So it's um, normally I think it's I mean the best remedy used to be to put someone in in that team who's who's from somewhere complete else that putting those I mean true questions the question that you can't even see in front of your eyes because you know exactly what it's like and how it is and I'm having big trouble now with some of our teams they are so professional they are very well skilled but when I ask them to do more extreme experiments experiments of things that we have not tried before not tested it's really hard for them to come up with those extreme experiments they tend to only iterate on exactly what they are doing just making it a little little better from before and they have a hard time to actually let go of what they know it's really hard i would say that you're right on spot i know maybe you're working with teachers maybe you're working with tech people and it's hard to make those two worlds meet in the in the middle somewhere because they they have a hard time to actually let go of what they know from before and, and create something new, new together. It's hard. Uh, yeah, I, oh, sorry, oh, please go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. Okay, sorry. Uh, you mentioned something that, spa that sparked uh, a thought in my mind, uh, Marlin. You mentioned experiments, right? And I think as people that work in product, that is our job to experiment and ask questions and hopefully find new answers that our competitors haven't found. And of course, it's, it's tough to push those experiments because everyone, like we've kind of understood, like there's different idea of what success is. So certain people are willing to take certain experiments, some people aren't. But I think maybe the closest thing, this is now 
me philosophizing, right? The closest thing we could do is maybe get everyone to understand that every part of the organization is part of the product. The person in sales is part of the product. The person in customer support is part of the product. And they should keep asking questions within that realm that they operate of things that can change and new barriers that can be uh, broken. And I think maybe maybe there's a magic there that can maybe uh, align with what we have in mind as product people. What do you guys think? Yeah, I... <laughs> oh, you can go, go in, yes. Yeah, I, I, I agree, absolutely. And I think back to some other questions here and that we to have talked about before, transparency and, and including people in this and, and people with different backgrounds, I think is, is very important because really you don't see what's outside your own little box, not somewhere. <laughs> uh, and you really need to, uh, but I also think it's very interesting that at least two people here are actually working with products that they build for themselves or working with them. So uh, I, I think this is kind of common in, in, in the product world that we are actually working with products that we somehow feel for in, in a sense or have been um, put through somehow or so on. Uh, so so I, I think it's an interesting thing to, to be mindful of because there are a lot of things that, that traps that you can fall into. Cheers, guys. Um, we'll come on to... Andrew's question le last, if he wants to finish us off. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my question is, what role does empathy play in successful product development? And I guess to lead into the question, I'll just define empathy, uh, which is the ability to understand and share the feelings of, of another. And the reason why I'm asking this question, is assuming that, of course, empathy is a good thing, I'm curious where within the process of planning and strategizing as product people, where do we think it's important to be empathetic? And is it valuable at all? Do we, at least from you guys' experiences, has it moved the needle of success in any one direction? Is it important to hire people? Uh, uh, cons considering the em em empathy and also is it important for a team to be empathetic to the stakeholders? So I'm curious to hear what do you guys think? I think we've been talking about the trust thing and we know that to be able to put difficult questions or dare to do radical experiments or whatever you you need some sort of trust and, and to create trust, I, I guess you must have some sort of empathy or understandment of how other people act and how they react to you, what you're saying and so on. So, of course, there is some sort of empathy around that issue to build trust, I would say. Um, but then I'm thinking in our organization, when we're doing these huge transformance from one core skill set and and uh, to a complete other, uh, we can't do that or i don't believe that we should do that or or can do that in just you know like throwing everything up in the air and believe that people will feel well if we put it together in a new way in one night so the strategy we have is to try to make that transformation of skills and mindsets and goals and who is working with who and new ways of t putting teams together and so on, like one step at a time. And over that process, which I believe is, and I mean, many years long process, or maybe it will never end because maybe the world will be changing so much for the rest of the future. So it will continue to change for as long as we will know. But we always now measure 
so that people do not crash when we are doing these. We are following up measurements of that people feel just as energized and positive and feel that we are going in the right direction, that they are, you know, like if we make them a part of what we do and, and try to see them and understand them and their situations, we cannot do these changes right now because that's too much for us. We are having stress in our team right now and so on then we're not doing that. Then we are waiting with that team or that department for some time more until they are ready. So I, I do think that that is some sort of aspect of empathy for people. And if we don't have that, they cannot deliver anyway. We cannot make them ready to deliver in new ways before they are. And we will have to help them step by step to get there. And I think that we are following up measurement wise. Are you still feeling as energized and you want to work in this company and, you know, like so that no one is starting to feel that we are too troublesome in this process? I completely agree. And I think you've you've attacked the question from a very interesting angle, because when I was thinking about it, I was thinking more about the customer, but you've taken it internally. Imagine which is quite quite interesting. And you've mentioned some very interesting things about how empathy can change mindset and the way people communicate, because you mentioned sometimes product teams are put under so much pressure of timeline, but if some, some of that was communicated with a bit of more empathy, the mindset of the person communicating might change and their wording also might change as well. So that's very interesting. And also you mentioned energy of the team as well, because if that mindset changes, then chances are, I don't know if we if we if we go on from here and test these things. Chances are the energy of the team as well will go up. So very interesting perspective. My my approach might maybe tell something about how important I think that the wellness of the teams and people are and the intelligence that they have together is for a great product in that case. <laughs> exactly. And 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 I guess my asking the question tells my bias towards the, the customer given that I kind of um, a customer of the product as well. So yeah, bias. Ayanara? <laughs> uh, um, I, I would say I, I kind of, I, I had three points when I was thinking about this empathy with your users, of course, because you, you, you really want to build the thing that they need, not what you want. Or sometimes it also happens, uh, technology by itself becomes the thing like, oh, I really want to build something with AI. And then you're just... <laughs> You want to use AI and then you build something that is it's not really what they need. It's what you wanted to, or you wanted to use that technology, but they don't need that. They don't have a way of using it. They It's impossible. So definitely empathy for, for your users. Um, um, but I also had the colleagues and I also had the stakeholders. What I said, they're also your colleagues. So um, with the team, like to understand each other, I think part of this whole, we talked a lot about transparency and communication and and clarity and it's really hard if you I've been in meetings where you're talking with someone and you clearly see that you're not able to understand each other it's like how how is it possible and because you're there is this quote that I really like that it says like um listen to understand not to respond right so if you're truly and maybe I'm, I'm mistaking empathy with with the ability to understand the other I, I don't know but to me, like that understanding and, and um, again, what is success for that other person and how can I help being part of that success and how can I explain what I need as well so we can get to, to a shared ground. 
that's impossible if you're not able to do that exercise of putting yourself in the shoes of the other person and and understand their situation. And the same thing with like when you talk about teams, Malin, like for example, now probably you've also been reading about Klarna and the 700 people that they fired. Everyone must be, they must be feeling horrible, like the ones that stay, the ones that, that left, but the ones that stay, like how how can you ask them to, I don't know, continue working or like even take on some of the work that some of the people were doing because now they're like 700 people less. You need to be conscious of all those situations. Um, and yeah, keep that in mind. And, and when you talked about planning, um, because you said how... When in your planning, you, you should think about empathy. I would say you should be thinking about empathy or you should, you should try to be empathetic every time, every day, all the time. But I would say when you do planning, I've done a lot of planning and this constant, constant, constant conflict, sorry, with upper management willing to do 10 features and the development team saying no, we can only do eight. Why do we keep pushing for 10 if they're telling us that they can only do eight? That's part of the trust as well. Um, but also, I don't know if it's also empathy of understanding why they're saying that, not because they want to, but just because they really think they can do 10. Um, I don't know. Those were my random thoughts. Uh, sorry, uh, Elias, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I, this is very interesting. I, I, as Andrew, I my first thought, empathy in product development. Okay, in user research, you need to be able to listen and understand people. So that's empathy. That's the most important thing. Uh, but <laughs> I'm standing here thinking that that um, uh, this, this word trust uh, is recurring here. Uh, and to be able to create trust, you need to have empathy, probably. Uh, and also in our, our talks, I have to give this to everyone in our talks, we are, we are coming back to the same words and, and tying everything together in a very nice way here, probably indicating that we are kind of empathetic because we are actually listening in here and, and, and really tying everything together. So I, I think that's a very important thing the, the trust, creating the trust and therefore em empathy is very important in, in product development, in both building teams, but also in understanding the users, of course, uh, but also creating this buy-in that we need in the entire organization for both the product, but also from the different departments that we have from upper management and everything. Uh, so empathy is probably key here to build the trust that also also key. Our jobs is not very easy. Maybe. We actually, I have a, a an example of how we work with the trust issue and uh, empathy in that matter. Um, when we are using user data to track our users to actually improve our our services of some kind, uh, we as a public service company have to do that with high carefulness. I mean, it's 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 a it's a trust issue. It's a trust issue. Why do we do that, and how do we do that? The following up we do on that, the measurement we have is uh, how our own developers rate if we are careful or not with the data that we use, because that's the best way we have, you know, understand. I mean, how can we understand what the, because many users don't even know, you know that. Many users don't even know if, they don't even care if we use their data carefully. They should know, but they don't know if we know that. We st should still be careful with their data, right? And so the best way that we have fo can follow that up is that our own developers 
feel the responsibility that we do that with responsibility so that they also do it and it's like they're having it on in their mind all the time that's sort of kind of an empathy for the users that we demand from our own developers producing the the platforms and uh, sorry very quickly i because that that made me think about something Mm, when your whole thing of testing assumptions uh, before testing ideas and so on. Um, I am a big fan of Teresa Torres. I don't know if you know her, but um, she she has a nice process of of how you should pick three different ideas and then uncover the assumptions, and and she does that in a very systematic way. And and one of the points is ethical concerns. You all the time think about are there any ethical concerns here that we should be considering. Um, and I think that's a really good built-in way of, of building empathy in your process, like being thorough on your on like looking for assumptions in, in four or five different categories, including um, ethical concerns. I just that came to my mind. I don't know why. Guys, uh, there's so much interesting stuff everyone has mentioned so much. But I've, I've taken a few notes here because uh, there's something you said, Diana, uh, that, was, that I found quite interesting, that listen to understand. And I think that helps everyone to, one, act in each other's favor because we understand that the, the person across has understood what I'm saying. And in an interesting way, it allows for empathy, not, not only going downwards from top management downwards, but also upwards. So in the scenario that you gave, 10 stories, the management wants 10 stories, you are saying eight. But maybe from an empathetic view, like, okay, we can do eight. But is there a way that we can manage to fit in maybe one extra story, right? Then I think in that way, management also thinks that, okay, these, like the team understands my pressure from, say, the board or the investors. They understand the pressure I'm under and they're reducing the stress I'm, I'm receiving. And to tie into what Elias said, that builds trust in the team because we know that we are in each other's corner and creates a very interesting dynamic within, within the company where you have insight on how everyone, what everyone is working towards and everyone is working with each other to help each other to achieve those individual uh, goals. So it's very interesting stuff you guys just uh, shared. I think that's um, a, a great point to end on. Um, so we'll leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Ainara, Andrew, Elias and Marlon for providing their insights into the topic. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at daniel.mycheck at evolution-nordics.com and we'll see you next time.